all of us learn to value certain things about architecture. And for me, architecture has always been a construction of time. Hello, and welcome to Tata Tet, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Harish Krishnamurthy, and today we have a new installment in our series of digital remote interviews in collaboration with Platt Journal. We are excited to have with us Rice Architecture Professor Carlos Jimenez of Carlos Jimenez Studio, a Houston-based architecture practice. A few of the firm's works include the Houston Fine Art Press, the Spencer Studio Art Building at Williams College, and the St. George Hotel in Marfa, Texas. Carlos, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Harish. Thank you for that very kind introduction, and I'm very pleased to participate in this series. I want to start off by asking, your practice is predicated on a level of intimacy not usually found in other firms, especially not by choice. You typically employ only a few people at a time, and you've often sought out clients rather than projects, building deep relationships with them over the years. How do you see this personal intimacy reflected in the architecture that you produce and the scales at which you operate? And in a field that has conventionally pushed firms towards sustained growth, where do you see your philosophy fitting in? This is very interesting that you capture or you, you make reference to this idea of intimacy. And I would say that it's more perhaps a proximity to the work. Obviously, the work is not generated by us. You know, architecture is a public art. It depends on the complex set of circumstances and normally instigated or propelled by the desires of a client. And so for me, that intimacy, as you refer to it, or I would say more proximity or closeness with a client is fundamental. I'm equally interested in not only building a particular project, but also building these relationships. And these relationships have been uh, decades. I mean, I started my studio in 1983, and in fact, at present, we're working on project number six for a client that I did work for in 1985. What I uh, appreciate is this recurrence, this continuation between uh, a kind of complicitness that develops in these friendships. And I use the word complicit here in its positive sense. We create a, not only a friendship, but also a, a milieu that allows us to create an open conversation to make hopefully better projects. And I think that this uh, building, not only of the project, but also building a friendship, is something that has become very much uh, an essential part of how I run my studio. And because of that, it's, it's not at all a conventional office, as you probably already have seen, but it is more of a, an opportunity to engage in, in issues that are, let us say, important for all parties involved. Building relationships through design, through conversations, through friendships, creates this binding material, uh, something that binds both uh, efforts and aspirations. It can also reveal shortcomings and achievements. It's not always guaranteed that it, it's a simple road to success. But this is really the, the basis of enterprise that, that I engage in. I often see myself more 
of a builder, really. I, I love to build relationships. I, I love building sites. I love the energy that uh, is generated in this site where things are constructed. And so that's also part of these friendships. It's not just simply with a client. It's also with a contractor, with the people that are executing the work. It's, for me, architecture is, a, is an all-engulfing activity that necessitates this proximity or this intimacy. I, I keep the office a certain size so that I can retain that closeness, that proximity or intimacy. Uh, there are many ways of defining it. To answer your second question, I don't know if I have invested in an office that profits that way. It profits in other ways, in, in ways that are more fulfilling in my view. Not for us alone, but for our clients and, and our friends. All of us learn to value certain things about architecture. Uh, some of us value its propensity for invention. Some of us value its uh, materialities. I value for most in architecture time. And for me, architecture has always been a construction of time. And so when I engage in any project, I'm always thinking about time. Not just the time that is taking to make the project, but also how the project will develop in time. I have a great envy of landscape architects. I always have loved the way that when they plant a tree, they care for the tree. They can tell how its branches might develop, what needs to be procured for that tree to give sustenance, to provide shade, to provide all kinds of incredible things that happen precisely in time. Uh, they're not immediate. And architecture lately has been somehow sequestered by an idea of time that is very deficient and is very dangerous because architecture, unfortunately, is one of those human endeavors that is enriched precisely by its understanding of time. In that sense, um, I feel a little bit outside of these concerns about speed, about efficiency, all these things that really only tend to benefit the system of the market and the ever-present capitalist tendencies that seem to rule our present world. In relation to what you said and to a closeness that you described, a notable aspect of your practice is that your studio and your house coexist in the same building. And it seems that it is designed to accommodate a balance between working areas and domestic spaces. In a similar vein, your website describes how you are personally invested in every stage of project development. Have you always been motivated by this very intimate relationship with architecture? Or is this something that you've built up over the years as you've practiced? I'm originally from Costa Rica. When I was growing up, I was fascinated by buildings, by structures, by constructions of all kinds. You know, I didn't even know it was called architecture, to tell you the truth. I was fascinated by this activity that humans engage in changing a landscape, in changing a city. I felt so close to it. I, I didn't know how to express it, how to write about it, but I felt very close to it uh, since I can remember. And maybe it has something to do with how all of us develop a certain attraction to understand the world that we come to be in. And I, I immediately gravitated to architecture without even knowing it was called architecture. Later on, somebody told me that you had to study for it and you had to go through these processes and all that. But that I sort of cast aside and I just continue a, 
a passion that I had already developed. And so when I graduated, I, I didn't think much about it. I was a bit naive. I was very young. And the first thing I did was I built a house and a studio because that was the natural thing for me to do. It's very hard for me to separate life, work, teaching. You know, it, it's all intertwined for me. I, I just live in it. And it's very hard for me to have that distance to separate. Okay, well, now I'm working. Now I'm teaching. Now I am uh, uh, living. <laughs> it's all the same circular pattern and you know this daily exchange that architecture makes available for me is is really enriching and then I find that it's not just architecture as a, as a production it's also architecture as a, as a conversation or it's just a, a more natural state of being for me and you know it, it's both a blessing and a curse if I can say it in a more explicit way because I sometimes don't know where one begins and the other one stops. It's, it's not so clear. Reflected in your career is an advocacy for, as you've described it, a holistic approach to design. Aside from your practice, you've taught at numerous universities across the country and have become a full-time faculty member here at Rice. You are also a longtime jury member for the Pritzker Prize and have written extensively for various international publications. What has motivated this multifaceted approach and specifically, how do you see your practice, your teaching in dialogue with each other and with the rest of your work and what you write about? Yes, I think that you're right. It has some relationship. I would say that I'm very interested in how architecture is enriched by not only knowledge of its local conditions, but by the world at large. And teaching, I have been very fortunate that teaching has been a, a wonderful opportunity that was offered that was available for me uh, before I joined Rice full time in 1997, and that that experience that took me to places from uh, Eugene, Oregon, to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to New Orleans, to uh, San Francisco, to Los Angeles—all those amazing semesters that I spent traveling and teaching were incredible. They were like another education because I was exposed to. Uh, the vitality of different cities, different localities. And I also learned how distinctly unique each place is, uh, regardless of how global our world is, how unique it, it is also precisely in this locality. One of the great lessons of architecture is that it always is located somewhere. It doesn't exist in some uh, fantasy world. It has a setting, it has a very contingent reality that has to be uh, addressed. But it also depends on a global fortitude, an universal language that can be achieved uh, simultaneously. This interesting parallel is another aspect of why it's critical to travel and to visit other cultures. And, you know, for me, the the adventure continues to this day, as you know. You were part of a studio where we make an enormous effort to take students to travel and see cities, uh, participate in every level of that culture so that they can become better citizens, better designers of the world and of their locality. So I think that this, this enormous effort that we make is perhaps something that it's a continuation as well of my own predicaments or my own desires, which I am very 
restless right now because I cannot travel. Like uh, I managed to get to El Paso recently and to Dallas and to Santa Fe, but that's as far as I've gone in this last four months. And it's very, very difficult because I find travel one of the great avenues and, and potentials for students and for practitioners to learn. I think it, it also enriches your life in so many levels, levels that are often uh, surprising. You know, I don't uh, profess that we live in a world uh, devoid of uh, the enormous value that travel brings to our education. We learn from many tools, from digital tools, physical tools, whatever we learn from, there, there are many but ultimately, it is in the observation that travel grants you that you are able to really see the world for what it is. And to truly know the world is to see it with an enormous patience and empathy. You know, I encourage students to travel as much as, as they can with this desire to learn. It's inevitable. I mean, you experienced that when we went to Spain last February. And, and for you to be alert and to be alive in that set of circumstances that make you feel like the world exists for you to explore and to enjoy. And I find it very sad that often uh, in these trips, we rush. We don't have enough time, unfortunately, because we have a limited amount of time. If I could have my way, I would spend a whole semester traveling. It would certainly be enjoyable a whole semester abroad yes yes and maybe it's this uh, you know um, situation we find ourselves in that has suddenly elicited this desire to travel even more <laughs> but also my experience at the Prisker Prize that lasted 11 years was one of the great educations in my life I was able to visit many parts of the world I met uh, countless architects and uh, visited equally amount of cities and it, it was an, an extraordinary experience. It also taught me a lot about how powerful culture is and how disoriented we find ourselves today because we are both globally connected but we're also locally dependent. You know, it, it's one of the great paradoxes of living in our times, you know, because uh, everything is affected by this connectivity. It is also enriched precisely by the localities where you are working. I wanted to go off the discussion on context and the cities that you've been in by asking about your relationship with Houston in particular. Your firm is based in Houston, and while you've completed several projects across the country, the majority of your projects have been built in Texas. How has the context of Houston played into how you've designed your projects? In short, what has Houston and Texas offered to you architecturally? Well, Houston has been a, a very important part of my development as a designer, as a human being, as a teacher. And I think it has to do primarily with the fact that it's a convulsive city. It's a city that is not uh, traditionally a city in the most, let us say, obvious ways. Houston is very much like a vast territory. It's always in the making. What attracted me to Houston to begin with was this open possibility, you know, this endless horizon. But that endless horizon is also a temptation to commit so many mistakes in the way that the city is developed. And so for me, Houston has been a, a great cross-section of how we exist in this world of extreme consuming expansion, 
this is a city that allows this opportunity to consider <clears throat> ways of making a better place, making better buildings. I find that Houston has a, a certain hidden beauty. You know, there, there are lots of things that the city produces in its environment that are rather beautiful, but we don't see them because the architecture is not conducive to that. So that what we try to do with many of our projects is to use the architecture as an instrument of seeing something that might not have been perceived before. So for me, buildings are really an opportunity, again, to highlight something about Houston that is truly unique. And that might be something very elemental, like perhaps uh, an oak tree or a particular orientation of light. And if we have the patience and the endurance to look for them, because it's often not easy. I remember years ago working for a project here for the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. We did this administration building and and it sits there. It's now 26 years old. And I, I sometimes visit the building and I'm still always marveling at the fact that we were able to preserve all those oak trees along Montrose Boulevard. We preserved them and they really, they magnified the condition of space and volume. And these interchanges to me are very important in a city where sometimes the only landscape, the only virtue that you can bring to a project are those connections because all around you, it's, everything goes. Houston absolutely has a, a great influence in the way at least uh, I approach a project, especially in the city. You have to confront this vastness of territory in that enormity of space. Uh, architecture gives you the instruments to sometimes locate you in that vastness. Houston is such an interesting environment for me that it needs for us as designers to be vigilant, to be uh, proactive, to be also aware and highly agile of the means by which we can construct the city. And if we want to engage in that construction, we have to take all of these opportunities very seriously. And one of the most interesting things that I have observed in my 43 years of living in Houston is that it's exciting for once to see in a city that is so driven by individualism to find collectivity in through density. You know, that to me is very exciting. You know, our profession of architecture is a humble profession. It's humble because it's overwhelmed sometimes by the immensity of these problems. We have to take action in whatever way we can. And for me, it always has been the level of understanding these nuances, these subtleties that can be found in, the, in a place like Houston. I want to end with a final question that is a little away from urbanism and uh, cities. Beyond architecture, you've spoken extensively on the profound influence that other cultural media, such as film, literature, and music, have had on your design process and ethos a long-standing class that I've taken that you've offered to students at Rice has focused on the idea of cultural objects constructing images, as you put it, especially architecture. Where does architecture fit into the cultural landscape as a work of art, in your view? And in what ways does this notion of producing images factor into how you design? And does it tie into your idea of what timeless architecture should be or of how architecture's relationship with time really should be considered. 
culture as a, and I want to be clear that by culture, I mean this uh, incredible edifice that we as humanity have constructed for the benefit of our spiritual, intellectual, and physical endeavors to take place. And I think that I teach this course that you referred to and that you participated in because I have sensed, as many others, that we live today in a world uh, saturated, almost overwhelmed by this endless rainfall of images, as the Italian writer Italo Calvino refers to them. And how to make sense of this uh, plethora of images, how to make sense of this overabundance uh, of images. They are constantly being thrown at us. We use them, we digest them, we throw them away. And, and so the purpose of expanding the meaning of culture in the education of an architect is really precisely because I see that connection to time that I described earlier, essential, let us say, agencies of culture. I mean, take film, for instance. I watch as many films as I can every week because I, I find them the most conducive and the most parallel to understanding architecture. It, it takes a condition of time and it, it emancipates that condition, it liberates it, it creates a reflection, it endures in this opening, it conditions you to appreciate something that perhaps you had not foreseen or for that matter even imagined. So the same goes through literature, through music, certainly through architecture, but I chose those four because they're very close to me. I find those very much part of the armature of how I construct the world and, and how it helps me to understand architecture in this interchange of other cultural agencies. Time is really our most precious commodity. And it is one of the big ironies of our particular moment in history that it is the one thing that we waste the most. And so for me, architecture is one of the great repositories, it's one of the great places where time can be revealed to the occupant. And I make an enormous effort in every project to inscribe each work with those moments. I find that same amount of time, that precious time, in a film, as I said earlier, in a poem. If you remember, one of the poems that we examined in the seminar was uh, Joseph Brodsky, the great Russian-American poet called Axiom. You read that poem, and even though you can read it in a minute, it takes a, a lifetime to understand that poem. And, and, and it's the same in a way with architecture, you know, that takes a long time to understand or to, let us say, to inhabit that cultural artifact. There's another aspect to your question, which I think is important, that is that the knowledge and the participation with other art forms also enriches the work of architecture. And I, I fear that um, architecture of late has been uh, sequestered primarily by the eye. And the eye is a very deceptive sense. And it's one that unfortunately has completely taken over the world. We see the world to this visual manifestation of images that rely solely on the beguiling eye. And, and, the, and there is more to that image. There is a depth, there is a thickness. And that's why this seminar that you started asking me about deals with that. It, it's not the, the surface of the image. It's actually quite the opposite. It's, it's depth, it's, it's thickness. It's that kind of um, wealth that you find when you see somebody very carefully 
constructing an image for a particular purpose that the author himself or herself sometimes had not even foreseen. Those are the most powerful images. Carlos, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your work with us and have this conversation. This is great. Thank you for being uh, open to not only the the answers, but also to be uh, aware that it's just the beginning. For more information on current Carlos Jimenez Studio projects, please visit the firm's website at carlosjimenezstudio.com. If you've liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases as part of our collaborative series with Plat Journal. I'm your host, Harish Krishnamurthy, and this has been Tete a Tete.